This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Queen Pin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, drug abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a warm night in July 1991. Driving a luxury car, Thelma Wright and her friends pulled up to Studio West, a club in West Philadelphia. Studio West wasn't a place Thelma wanted to be. It was always crawling with violent types and warring gangsters. But she wanted concert tickets, and this was the only place to get them. As Thelma and her friends got out of the car, a crowd started to trickle out onto the street. There was a concert at the club that night, and it had just ended. Thelma had a bad feeling she couldn't quite place. She told her friends to go in and grab the tickets. She'd wait outside. Thelma looked around, taking in the crowd. She stood out, 34 and impeccably dressed, outside a seedy club late at night. Then she heard a man shout. She looked over and saw a gun. She was in the middle of a firefight, She was in shock. She couldn't move. Someone grabbed her and pulled her down behind a dumpster. She felt the man lying on top of her, shielding her, she thought. But when Thelma picked her head up, she saw the barrel of a shotgun pointed right at her. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Thelma Wright, one of the United States' most successful bi-coastal drug lords in the 1980s and early 90s. 
This week, we'll explore her rise from normal teenager to wife of Philly's biggest heroin dealer to the leader of a heroin empire all her own. Next week, we'll look at her life of crime and the circumstances that led her to leave the drug business and never look back. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's dive into the life of Queen Pin Thelma Wright. It was February of 1990. Thelma and her girlfriends were courtside at the NBA All-Star Game in Miami, Florida. All the greats were there. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, and more. Thelma was an all-star in her own right. Not at basketball, even though she'd played for years. She was at the top of a different game, drug dealing. At the age of 33, Thelma ran a heroin and cocaine empire that stretched coast to coast. She had operations in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Los Angeles. On an average month, she was raking in $400,000. With inflation, that'd be nearly twice as much today. No luxury was out of bounds for her. She owned two Mercedes-Benz convertibles, but her son, Joachim, traveled to kindergarten in a chauffeured limo. She decked herself out in furs, partied with celebrities, and took her friends on spur-of-the-moment vacations. Over the weekend, Thelma and the girls shopped at the best luxury boutiques in Miami. A couple thousand dollars was a small sacrifice for the perfect dress or earrings. Fashion and makeup were some of life's greatest pleasures. This was the lifestyle of a queen pin. She never even had to get her hands dirty. She had men who shipped her the drugs, men who picked the drugs up, and men who brought back the money. It was easy to forget that her entire empire was built on blood. She'd inherited her husband's heroin enterprise after he was murdered in 1986. He was only one of many casualties in the violent underworld of the drug trade. But as long as none of the blood got on Thelma's expensive fur coats, she didn't care. By the end of the trip, Thelma was all out of cash. She should have brought more spending money then, miraculously, she recognized someone, an acquaintance she knew from Philly. He was in the drug game, too. Thelma had even dated his gang leader for a time. He knew as well as anyone what Thelma wants, Thelma gets. He lended her $2,000 in spending money to help her get by. Thelma had succeeded because she knew what people wanted, and in return, she got what she wanted a life of luxury and independence. This lifestyle had once been a far-off dream for the little girl who grew up in a working-class family in South Philadelphia. Thelma Wright was born Thelma Brown on August 8, 1956. She grew up on what many called the wrong side of the tracks in South Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thelma and her family were black, which in the 50s and 60s meant taking whatever you could get from the discriminatory housing market. Thelma was raised in a big Catholic family. She had two older brothers, two younger sisters, and a little brother. Her father had a well-paying job as a supervisor at the electric company, and her mother stayed home with the six kids. 
but the family's real passion was basketball. Thelma's parents were both former high school basketball players. Nowadays, her father was a community league referee and her mother coached in their spare time. Thelma excelled at sports in school too, basketball, softball, and track. Thelma's neighborhood in South Philly wasn't the safest place in the city. Nearly everyone in the neighborhood, including her parents, played the numbers in illegal gambling rackets. The gambling in Philadelphia was enforced by the Italian mafia and street gangs, which were a big part of the city's identity in the 50s. But growing up, Thelma and her siblings were mostly sheltered from the danger of organized crime. Thelma was a bit of a spoiled child. She was a daddy's girl who got into a lot of mischief. According to her siblings, their father used to say, if Thelma was a boy, she would be in jail. But when she wasn't misbehaving, she was fiercely loyal to her family. She always stood up for her younger siblings, and she wasn't afraid of anyone. Even as a little girl, she was always trying to keep up with her two older brothers. After Thelma finished high school in 1975, she started working night shifts at a bank. She was still living at home with her parents, but she spent her nights staying out late and partying with her friends. Thelma had gone to Catholic school, but by the time she was out of school, her friends had turned on to a different religion, the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam is a religious and political movement that combines traditional Islamic beliefs with the civil rights activism of the Black Power movement. At the time, they were fighting back against the rampant discrimination and racism that was happening across the U.S. Thelma told her devout Catholic parents that she wanted to convert and join the Nation of Islam. She believed in the religion's ideals, and all of her friends were part of it too. But her mother threatened to kick her out of the house if she gave up her Catholicism. So Thelma never converted. But that didn't make her an outcast. She had a diverse group of friends, girls her own age, older men, and even a few members of the Black Mafia. The Black Mafia was a crime organization similar to the Italian Mafia. It was started in 1968 by three men from the Nation of Islam, and by the mid-70s, it had grown into a full-fledged crime syndicate. The Black Mafia's primary goal was to make money and keep it in Philadelphia's black neighborhoods. They made their money through gambling, robbery, and extortion. They held territory like any mob or gang, and they forcibly taxed anyone who operated in their territory. By the time Thelma was running with the guys from the Black Mafia in 1975, the organization had evolved to practice drug dealing, violence, murder, and intimidation. But Thelma wasn't intimidated by the Black Mafia. On the contrary, she actually found herself attracted to these tough, older men. In 1975, when Thelma was 19, she was at a party in West Philadelphia with some of her girlfriends. She saw a man across the room who stood out in his expensive suit and designer felt hat. They smiled at each other and started talking. His name was Malik, and he was about 10 years older than Thelma. Thelma had always felt like she was too good for the boys her age. She wanted someone mature, experienced, and rich. And Malik certainly had money. They talked all night at the party, and soon afterward, they started dating. He often took Thelma to Atlantic City and bought her nice things like fur coats, a sure sign of wealth and style in the 1970s. Thelma had her own job. 
She was now working as a secretary in a government office, but Malik showered her with gifts she could never afford on her salary. It was a while before she found out where all his money was coming from. Malik worked in the numbers game, taking bets from others and gambling himself. In this line of work, he'd made a lot of enemies in the Black Mafia. One of these enemies was a man named Dave. Thelma had seen Dave around town and said hello on occasion, but she was never more than an acquaintance of an acquaintance, until one afternoon in 1976. Thelma was watching a basketball game outside a local high school. She didn't think anything of it when Dave and another man walked up behind her. Dave asked Thelma how she was doing. She said she was fine. It was typical neighborhood small talk. But then Dave asked Thelma to take a ride with him to Washington, D.C. Thelma thought he was joking. After all, she barely knew him. But then she saw his face. He was dead serious. Dave grabbed her and dragged her into the car. Thelma didn't scream. She just begged Dave to let her go. Dave was driving erratically. He told Thelma that he wanted to kill Malik. He seemed unhinged. Thelma knew not to try pushing him. She stayed as calm as possible. She told him her parents were expecting her home, and if she didn't show up, they'd come looking for her. Dave drove her around for about two hours, and then suddenly dropped her off back in South Philly, not far from her house. She knew Dave was in the Black Mafia, so she took it up with one of her friends who was in the gang, a man named Large. Large was upset. He apologized to her and told her he would talk to Dave about it. After that, Dave never bothered Thelma again. Thelma never blamed Malik for the incident. They stayed together, and in the fall of 1976, when Thelma was 20, the two of them moved in together. But their relationship soon changed for the worse. Malik was staying out for days at a time, gambling, drinking, and partying. He left Thelma at home by herself. Every time he came home, she argued and asked him where he'd been, but she never seriously thought about leaving him. Soon after they moved in together, Thelma found out she was pregnant. But the prospect of becoming a father did nothing to curb Malik's partying. In June 1977, when she was six months pregnant, Thelma began to feel pain in her stomach. She brushed it off, but by the afternoon, it was so bad she had to go to the hospital. She called Malik and told him to meet her there. He didn't. Thelma was all alone when she went into early labor. She gave birth to a baby girl who died after 15 minutes. When Malik finally showed up, Thelma didn't ask him where he'd been. She didn't get angry. She was numb. When she told him what had happened, Malik just said, it's okay, you can have more babies. This was the last straw for Thelma. She couldn't bear to go back home to Malik. She broke things off with him and moved back in with her parents. For a few weeks, Thelma fell into a deep depression. Without her baby and without Malik, her entire plan for the future had been upended. But she still had her family and friends. She had her secretary job. And there was a new man in town who was starting to catch her eye. Coming up, we'll see what happened when Thelma met the man who would change her life, Jackie Wright. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. It was the summer of 1977. Newly single, Thelma Brown started to notice a man riding around town in a gorgeous red Cadillac Eldorado convertible. His name was Jackie Wright. Jackie was a former Black Mafia member who'd left the gang to run his own heroin dealing business. Like Malik, he was 10 years older than Thelma. And like Malik, he had money and style. Every time Thelma ran into Jackie, he'd ask her out. She'd turn him down. She didn't want another boyfriend so soon after she'd broken up with Malik, but she was attracted to Jackie, and he was relentless. After Jackie asked her out several times, Thelma finally agreed. Their first date was in November 1977. After that, the two of them never looked back. Thelma knew about Jackie's drug dealing and his past as a member of the Black Mafia, but she had no problem with it. Like many of her friends, Jackie had grown up poor and needed a way to provide for his younger siblings. Jackie was charming, sweet, and it seemed like he had his head on straight. He had left the Black Mafia to get away from the constant turf wars with other gangs. It was smarter and safer to go into the drug business on his own. Jackie was the perfect gentleman. He would meet Thelma after work to give her a ride home. He took her to movies and nice restaurants. Their relationship was pretty normal. Compared to Malik, Jackie was the ideal boyfriend. That winter, Thelma moved out of her parents' house and into her own apartment, her first time living alone. Jackie visited and spent the night often. After a few months, their relationship was getting serious. In early 1978, Jackie even took Thelma on a trip to Los Angeles. Thelma had never been to L.A. before. As they touched down, she saw blue skies, sunshine, and palm trees. The weather was perfect, the people were relaxed, and Thelma was in a whole new world. But this wasn't just a vacation. Jackie wanted to expand his drug operation into L.A., and he had some friends to discuss business deals with. Jackie took Thelma along to meet them. She was awestruck by their mansions, their cars, and their lifestyle. This was her first real look at what the drug world could provide. As Thelma, Jackie, and some friends sat down to talk, someone pulled out a bag of cocaine. They put some into the end of a pipe and passed it around the circle. Thelma felt out of place. She had never done drugs before, and she didn't want to. Jackie sensed her discomfort and passed the pipe along before it got to her. He told his friends she was okay without it. Thelma appreciated it. Jackie knew what she wanted, and he didn't want to pressure her into anything. She'd be safe in the drug world as long as she was with him. After their dreamy trip, it was back to the real world. Thelma went back to work at her office job Jackie kept running his heroin business in Philly, leaving his friend Josh to handle things in L.A. With his connections on the West Coast, Jackie was selling more heroin and making more money. But that also meant he was getting more attention from the police. 
By the middle of 1978, Jackie and Thelma both started to notice cop cars following them. One night, Thelma was on her way to a friend's wedding. Thelma was going to stop and pick up a few friends, then meet Jackie there. But before she made it to her friend's house, she heard sirens. She looked in her rearview mirror to see blue and red lights blinking behind her. She pulled over to the side of the road, trying to stay positive. Thelma showed her license and registration, trying to cooperate. But this wasn't just a routine traffic stop. Several police cars pulled up and surrounded her. One of the officers told her they had a warrant for her arrest for selling narcotics. Thelma had never sold narcotics in her life. She told them this much, but they cuffed her and took her to the police station anyway. Thelma thought they may be trying to use her to get to Jackie. She wasn't sure if she should be angry or terrified. The Philadelphia police were notorious for brutality against black people. Thelma had heard the stories about officers beating or killing people of color. She had no idea what would happen to her at the station. She was innocent, but she could end up in jail or worse. When they reached the station, she was interrogated and forced to strip down to her underwear. She did as she was told. As she stood there, she could hear officers next door laughing. After two hours, she was finally allowed to leave. She drove away from the precinct, shaking from fear. She'd already missed her friend's wedding. She went straight to the wedding reception, but her night was already ruined. She found Jackie and told him everything that had happened. He took it very seriously and promised to protect her. But after that incident, the cops didn't let up. Jackie and Thelma were still tailed by the police. On one occasion, detectives even broke into Jackie's house and raided it, looking for drugs. Jackie spent more and more time at Thelma's house, both for her comfort and to avoid the constant surveillance at his place. Police were only part of the problem. Shortly after Thelma's interrogation, Jackie went out on a Saturday night to meet some friends, and he was shot in the arm by rival gang members. The bullet went through the inside of his arm into his lung and got lodged in his throat. Thelma rushed to the hospital. His condition stabilized, but it took weeks for him to be able to talk again. When he was finally able to, he told Thelma that he'd left $1,000 at her apartment and asked her to keep it safe for him. She agreed. Thelma visited Jackie every day, but one weekend she decided she needed a break from hospitals. She wanted to go to Atlantic City with her friend, but she was low on cash, so she decided to take around half the money Jackie had left at her place. Jackie was always liberal with his money. She didn't think it would be a problem. But when Jackie got out of the hospital and noticed the missing money, he flew into a rage, yelling and screaming. It was completely out of character. As it turned out, Jackie had become addicted to painkillers while he was in the hospital, and he continued to take them even after his release. For months afterwards, he was moody and his behavior was erratic. But Thelma learned to accept the outburst. When he wasn't acting up, Jackie was kind, bought her gifts, and treated her like a gentleman, the way he had before the shooting. But the violent behavior only got worse. He escalated from screaming to slapping and beating her. Thelma kept making excuses. It was the painkillers, not him. The final straw came on August 8, 1979, Thelma's 23rd birthday. 
She waited outside her office after work for Jackie to pick her up, as usual. She was sure he'd have something special planned for the night. She kept waiting and waiting. But the longer Thelma waited, the farther her hopes fell. She eventually accepted that Jackie wasn't coming. Eventually, Jackie's friend Bubbles finally rolled up. Thelma was furious. She asked where Jackie was. Bubbles told her he was at a friend's house. Thelma insisted on driving over to talk to him. When they arrived at the house, Thelma saw Jackie out front with a bunch of his dealers. She marched up to him and asked him why he didn't pick her up from work. Jackie was standoffish and on edge, the way he always was during his painkiller-fueled outburst. He said he was busy and that he'd see her later. She was yelling at him in front of all his dealers. He thought it was disrespectful. She reminded him that it was her birthday, but it didn't seem to faze him. It escalated into a serious shouting match right in the middle of Jackie's business deal. Jackie told her to go home. Thelma started to walk away, but then she turned around to get one last word in. But the moment she turned around, Jackie pulled out a gun, pointed it directly at her, and pulled the trigger. The bullet went right through her thigh and out the other side. She was taken to the hospital and had to have surgery. She didn't tell the doctors that it was Jackie who had shot her. Thelma had a lot of time to think while she was in the hospital. Her first boyfriend, Malik, had abandoned her and showed no empathy when their baby died. Her second boyfriend had just shot her in the leg. She justified Jackie's behavior by telling herself that she had made him angry. He told her to go home, but she kept yelling at him. He was doing business, and she should have just left him alone. When she recovered enough to get back on her feet, she told Jackie she needed some time away from him to think. He paid for her plane ticket to fly to L.A. and visit some friends. After two weeks in L.A. and another two weeks settling back into life in Philadelphia, she started spending time with Jackie again. She still blamed herself for the shooting, and she'd convinced herself it wouldn't happen again. Up next, we'll follow Thelma's complicated relationship with Jackie Wright and how it brought her to the top of a drug empire. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1979, Thelma and Jackie moved into an apartment together in Deptford, New Jersey. Jackie thought they would be safer in New Jersey, where it would be harder to get to them. In Philadelphia, rival gangs were constantly fighting over territory. Jackie was a sort of independent entrepreneur. He no longer belonged to a gang. He kept to his own territory, but he was paranoid that if a bigger gang were out to get him, he would have no one to protect him. Jackie was still dealing in his old Philly neighborhoods, which were only a short drive away from their new home in Deptford. But as long as they were out of the city, Jackie thought they'd be in the clear. Thelma loved their new place in New Jersey. Jackie continued to shower her with money, gifts, and vacations. But in January of 1980, just a few months after they moved, Jackie suddenly told Thelma their relationship was over. Thelma was devastated. The breakup came out of nowhere, and he didn't give her an explanation. As usual, she blamed herself. But Thelma had survived without a man before, and she'd survive without one again. 
She got a job working in a hospital billing department and kept living in the house she and Jackie had shared. She focused on moving forward as a successful, independent woman. Eventually, though, Jackie came back into the picture. He never gave her an explanation as to why he broke things off. He never even apologized. But Thelma loved Jackie so much, she didn't care. She was just thrilled to have him back. By July 1980, six months after the breakup, the two of them were together again. Thelma stayed at her university hospital job, which was a temp to permanent position. It was all falling into place. Thelma was 23. She was soon to be offered a permanent job. She and Jackie had their house, and someday they might even get married. After nine months, Thelma met with her manager at work to ask about when she would become a permanent employee. Her manager told her that she was concerned about Thelma's personal life. She'd heard rumors that Thelma's boyfriend was a drug dealer. The full-time position would not be happening. When Thelma vented to Jackie about it, he said he didn't want her working there anymore. He told her she should quit. And she did. That fall, Jackie told Thelma it was time to move back to Philadelphia. She liked New Jersey and didn't want to leave. But if it was New Jersey or Jackie, the choice was obvious. Before she even noticed, Jackie was making all the decisions for Thelma. And he always had a way to justify it. Jackie was paranoid about snitches, so he was very careful about who he interacted with. He would only allow Thelma to see her family. Her friends weren't allowed in their home. The pattern continued like this. Jackie would tell Thelma where she could go, what she could do, and who she could do it with. But Thelma loved Jackie, and she always did as he said. In 1981, at age 25, Thelma got pregnant. After finding out about the pregnancy, she and Jackie bought a house in New Jersey. But Jackie still wouldn't allow Thelma to have friends over, so it was just the two of them in New Jersey. Thelma didn't even have a job to occupy her time. She was completely isolated. On September 19, 1982, Thelma gave birth to a baby boy, Jakeem Lacey Wright. Thelma thought it was high time to get married, but Jackie kept stalling. Finally, more than a year later, Jackie asked Thelma to marry him. After six years of dating, Thelma and Jackie Wright were married on December 3, 1983. Thelma was 27. Jackie was still working in the drug trade, and he was moderately successful. But he was also still addicted to painkillers, which made him paranoid about being arrested or betrayed by one of his friends. Jackie was away from home often, leaving Thelma to take care of the baby. Jackie's paranoia rubbed off on Thelma, and she would sometimes fall asleep looking out the window, a gun in one hand and her baby in the other. As if that wasn't enough stress, Thelma soon discovered that Jackie was cheating on her. She was doing laundry one day when she found a note with three women's names and phone numbers tucked into one of Jackie's socks. Thelma stomped into the living room and shouted at Jackie. He ignored her completely and calmly walked out the front door. Jackie apologized by buying Thelma a furniture store, her very own business. He always told her she was smart and should work for herself instead of working in offices for other people. Thelma named it Right Place Furniture Store. It opened in September 1985. On top of his prescription drug addiction, 
Jackie started doing cocaine in late 1985. He became even more unhinged, abusive, and paranoid. Eventually, it drove such a wedge between the couple that Jackie moved out entirely, only coming home once every few weeks to see Jaquim. Meanwhile, Thelma was still working at the furniture store and taking care of three-year-old Jaquim. Her life would not stop for Jackie again. In January 1986, Jackie suddenly told Thelma that she and Jaquim would have to move to Los Angeles, where they would be safe from rivals and police. He gave them just a few days' notice. He wouldn't be moving with them. Thelma was 29 years old. She didn't want to uproot her entire life, but Jackie sounded serious. She wouldn't risk putting her son in danger. A few days later, Thelma packed up her life and flew to L.A. Thelma quickly created a life for herself in L.A. She liked her new home, her friends, and the weather. For the first time in a long time, she was happy. After just one month, Jackie told Thelma it was safe to come back home to the East Coast. But Thelma didn't want to leave. She was having fun. She had distance from Jackie's unpredictable moods. She was finally free. But money was starting to run low for the rights. Jackie's business wasn't doing great, and Thelma wasn't working in L.A. In March of 1986, Thelma and Jackie sold their old house in New Jersey and split the profits, but that could only take them so far. Thelma had always loved the luxuries that Jackie's drug dealing provided her with. She had worked off and on throughout her adult life, but she never made nearly as much money as her drug dealing friends and boyfriends. Thelma's niece in L.A. had a boyfriend who sold cocaine, and it was a profitable business. As her money dwindled low, Thelma decided it was time to get into the cocaine racket herself. Thelma's first tasks were simple. She would drive to a meeting place, pick up the drugs, package them up, and either hand them off to a drug dealer or ship them out in the mail. She only did this a few times, but each time, she received a few thousand dollars for just a few hours of work. Thelma liked having her own money, independent of Jackie. And she was good at it, too. She was likely able to fly under the radar, since she was a woman and a mother. Female drug dealers are often the last people suspected as criminals. But Thelma wasn't the only woman in the drug business. In April 1986, Jackie, who was still living in Philadelphia, brought on a woman named Auntie to help handle the Los Angeles side of his heroin business. Auntie was an older Asian woman who'd spent some time in prison. She was well-connected in the L.A. heroin scene, and she signed on to be the source for all of Jackie's L.A. dealers. Auntie became a mother figure to Thelma, since Thelma didn't have too many friends on this side of the country. Jackie stayed on the East Coast and Thelma on the West, but they talked on the phone every night. Jackie always wanted to say goodnight to his son, Jaquim. Early one morning in August, Jackie called Thelma and told her he wanted her to move back to Philadelphia. Now that she had tasted freedom, Thelma was no longer interested in getting back together with Jackie. Thelma hung up on him, expecting to talk to him that night, but he never called. The next day was Thelma's 30th birthday. As soon as she woke up that morning, something was eating at her. Jackie hadn't called the night before, 
and he hadn't called yet to wish her a happy birthday. It wasn't like Jackie to forget to call. Even if he was angry with Thelma for snapping at him the morning before, he wouldn't skip his nightly conversation with Jakim. She called one of Jackie's friends in Philadelphia to see if he'd heard from him. The friend hadn't heard from Jackie, but he had seen a young guy named Charlie driving around in Jackie's car. This immediately spiked Thelma's anxiety. Jackie never let anyone drive his car. There was definitely something strange going on. Jackie was still her husband, estranged or not, and Thelma was flying back to Philadelphia to find out what had happened to him. Thelma arrived in Philly the next day. Jackie's friend Charlie picked her up from the airport in Jackie's car. Charlie told Thelma that two nights ago, Jackie had gone inside an old dealer's house and never came out. Instead, a woman came out and told Charlie that Jackie had said to take his car. Jackie would find his own way home later. That was definitely out of character for Jackie. They drove to the police station. Thelma told the police what had happened, and they followed her and Charlie to the house where Jackie had last been seen. Charlie and Thelma waited in the car while the police officers went inside the house. Moments later, one of the officers returned. He told Thelma that Jackie was, in fact, inside the house, and he was dead. Thelma pieced together that Jackie had gotten into a dispute with an old drug dealer who owed him money. She was horrified. Even though they were estranged, Jackie was still her husband and the father of her child. And without him, she had lost her main source of income. When Jackie died, he left a lot of loose ends. There was a flow of narcotics to continue, a network of connections to pay, and untold sums of money hanging in the balance. Thelma had never known much about Jackie's business. It wasn't until after his death that she realized exactly how much power he had in the underworld. Jackie's operation was too big to just abandon. Someone had to take it over. And that person? was Thelma. Thanks again for tuning in to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out exactly how big Jackie Wright's empire was, how Thelma took over as the operation's queen pin, and what made her leave the criminal world behind forever. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Kingpins, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.